conscious capital. Profit equals people and planet. This is Conscious Capital with Tane Hunter. Revolutionising the way we think about business and investment. Find us on DAB Plus and Instagram. Hi, I'm Tane Hunter and you're listening to Conscious Capital, where we explore the cutting edge of science, technology and human progress to help individuals and organisations understand what's coming next. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent and optimistic thinking about our future. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing things in the 21st century and how you can be part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. Conscious Capital. Better business for a better world. We're truly focused on solutions rather than the problems. We research the science, technology, and the tools humanity has already created to help solve some of the world's biggest challenges. We love sharing cutting-edge stories of science, and not just because these breakthroughs are cool, which they certainly are, but because they showcase how science drives innovation. Science provides businesses with a deeper understanding of the world, and this information is what inspires companies to develop new technologies and products, ultimately giving them a competitive edge in the market. And it's not just the output of scientists that is valuable to businesses. It's the mindset they use to get there. Scientific thinking allows for correction. It constantly evolves. Given a new piece of contrary evidence, science insists that we rethink what we thought we once knew. And that is why it's awesome. It changes. Those changes accrue, altering our world irrevocably. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, no one likes to change their mind. We all struggle to let go of our ideas, especially to have them challenged. It feels personal and uncomfortable. And if you're anything like me, the feeling of getting something wrong is not one that you would enjoy. The problem is is not getting things wrong, because we all do it occasionally. I happen to be exceptionally good at it. The problem is not being aware of it, because the feeling of being wrong without realizing it, feels exactly like being right. Now, adaptable people get around this by admitting that there's a chance, however small, that they might be wrong. This means that when new evidence or better ideas come along, it's easier for them to gracefully change their mind. Now, at a corporate and organizational level, what is so powerful about this kind of mindset is that when you show your team and the people around you that your opinion has room to evolve, then it gives them the safe and respectable space to share their ideas, and change their minds, too. So it's important to understand, or at least appreciate, science. Now, businesses often face complex challenges, and scientific methods can help analyze data, conduct experiments, and make informed decisions based on empirical evidence. God, I love good gold-plated facts. Personally, I've had a love affair with science and biology for as long as I can remember. Are you curious about the natural world? Do you ever gaze up at the stars at night and wonder just how lucky we are to be here and where we all came from? If you have that curiosity, you are in for a treat because later in the show, we will be hearing from the legendary Dr. Carl. He has worked as a physicist, laborer, roadie for bands. I want to hear more about that. He's been a car mechanic, filmmaker, and bioengineer, where he designed and built a machine to pick up electrical signals from the human retina. He's also been a TV weatherman, 
a medical doctor at the Children's Hospital in Sydney. So he's had a checkered past. In 2002, Dr. Carl was honored with the prestigious Ig Nobel Prize, awarded by Harvard University in the USA for his absolute groundbreaking research into belly button lint and why it's almost always blue. And in September of 2003, Dr. Carl was bestowed with the great honor of being named Australian Father of the Year. You'll hear more about how he's doing 20 years later at being a father. But before we get to that, let's talk about some recent stories on the frontiers of science and technology, new innovations, and human progress. Why, you might ask. Because personally, I'm really excited about what's going on in the world and beyond, and I think you should be too. Right now, there are 10 people living in space, and there's a nuclear-powered robot searching for life on Mars. Now, I want to take a moment here to acknowledge that many people think it's a bit ridiculous that humanity spends billions of dollars in our pursuits of exploring space when there are so many problems we could focus here on our home planet. But I think it's important to point out that the space race has resulted in some very useful innovations that are an integral part of our daily lives. Here are a few everyday space inventions and their spin-offs you can find at home. We've got solar panels, water filters, microprocessors, crash helmets, cordless tools for the tradies, scratch-resistant lenses, household smoke detectors, satellite television, shoe insoles, and disposable diapers, just to name a few. Meanwhile, quantum mania continues. Physicists have peered through the proverbial looking glass, and the atoms on the other side belong to a world of opposites. For the first time, researchers have made an exotic quantum object called an Alice ring, which changes the properties of other quantum objects when they pass through it, or even when they're simply viewed through it. Now, quantum systems such as collections of extremely cold atoms or even our entire universe should theoretically contain odd objects called topological defects. Now, some are like long strings through the fabric and tapestry of the universe, and others are stranger still, like zero-dimensional dots at the center of things like magnetic fields, and they become mathematically impossible to describe. Now, such defects are not only difficult to observe, but also to create, that is, until now. Researchers at Aalto University in Finland have worked out how to create a topological defect that quickly transforms into another. Why is this important? These observations give us greater insight into the observable universe and the birth of where we all came from, the stardust from which we are made. Two recent studies have achieved the fastest ever translation of neural signals from brain-computer interfaces, the waves that our brain produces, and turn them into synthetic voices at around 70 words per minute. It is now possible to imagine a future where we can restore fluid conversations with people with paralysis who simply cannot speak, and it enables them to freely say whatever they want to with an accuracy high enough to be understood reliably. I simply love that. And now your voice can be used to say all kinds of things in different languages while still sounding like you. And companies like Eleven Labs' AI voice-generating technology are expanding to 30 different languages. 
Eleven Labs is a startup that has made headlines for its AI-powered voice-generating platform, which has been used for narrating audiobooks and increasing content accessibility. But it's also been used to make some public figures out there say terrible things. Have you seen some of the deep fakes out there? And the platform is expanding significantly, adding more and more languages. But personally, I really love the idea that I could talk to a grandma in Afghanistan or a tribe member in the Amazon and be able to understand their perspectives on life. I think that would really expand the human experience and make us all get along a little bit better in the sandbox we call planet Earth. And a patient in Jerusalem has become the first person in the world to undergo a procedure to repair an unstable spinal fracture using augmented reality. The operation involved AR assistance guided by a surgical spine robot, allowing the team to apply surgical screws in an extremely precise fashion along the spinal column. Conscious Capital, the business of being better. Technology is a layer over all aspects of our economy and has fundamentally transformed the world in which we live, work, and play. And science is the bedrock from which all of these technologies were created. So it's important to understand, or at least appreciate, science. To help us do that, we've invited the legendary Dr. Carl to join us. Welcome, Dr. Carl. Dr. Tana, you're too kind. Uh, I don't think I'm worthy, but thank you very much for having me on. Well, I think you're worthy if that means anything, but I'm really excited to have you on the show. Now, I read some of your standard bio at the top of the show. Can you tell us something about you that you wouldn't be able to read online? I spent a quarter of a century test driving four-wheel drives in the Australian outback and have spent a total of two years sleeping under the stars in the Australian outback and have crossed 15 of the 17 deserts with only two left to go. Oh, wow. There's a lot in that. I grew up in a desert and I also first fell in love by looking at the stars with my parents in rural New Mexico. So I'd like to ask you, when did you first fall in love with the field of science. What scientific pursuit really inspired you to first engage? I guess it's having a sense of curiosity and asking why. And on one hand, I remember walking home as a primary school student by myself and thinking the road is black because they put some bitumen or tar on it and I saw them do it. And it gets really hot in summer. And then I thought the grass, the big kids, the adults tell me that grass does something. It lives off sunlight and it wants sunlight. But why isn't it black like the bitumen and absorb everything instead of just green and the sky? How come it's blue? Why isn't it yellow or red? And then I started asking questions about the world around me. And then I remember when I was mowing the lawn with a lawnmower, a powered lawnmower when I was about 12 or 13, and um, the neighbour across the road had left the grass for a while, and suddenly their lawnmower came clattering to a halt, and there was this swearing as the neighbour unpicked some coat hanger wire, fencing wire, out of the blades of the lawnmower, and then having taken the wire out of the blades through the wire into the uncut grass ahead of him. And then about three minutes later, I had to do the same thing again. And to my surprise, (laughs) did it again. And I suddenly started thinking, that's irrational behavior. Why would humans do that kind of stuff? And I've never been able to solve that question. 
Yeah, why do it's almost like the plants are using us to take care of them. We tend to be many people are trapped by their lawns and gardening. Yeah, it was interesting watching that irrational behavior and not having an answer for it, as I didn't have answers for why grass isn't black and why the sky is blue at that time. Science is the pursuit of asking questions about things we don't understand and often occasionally, well, often about the irrational. But going back to colors, in 2002, mm-hmm. you were honored with the prestigious Ig Nobel Prize awarded by Harvard University for your groundbreaking research in belly blood and lint and why it is always blue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Somebody rang me up on the ABC Radio Triple J and said, why do we get belly button fluff and why is it almost always blue? To which I gave the totally honest answer of, I don't know. And then I went looking up in the literature and the best I could find was something in the British Medical Journal saying that in the same way that all roads lead to Rome, all hair on the abdomen leads to belly button. (laughs) So I... That's not really an answer, but I read out next week on Triple J. And then a three, about three months later, somebody rang in and said they'd listened to my answer and they had a hairy abdomen and lost the belly button fluff. And so they did the experiment of shaving a circle 10 centimetres in diameter around their belly button. And suddenly their production of belly button lint just fell to zero. And this inspired me to start off doing a survey of 5,000 people in which we found that the average generator of belly button lint is just slightly overweight middle-aged male. But we did have an interesting story from a young teenage female who was relatively hairless and yet generated lots of belly button fluff. And she thought it was related to her wearing very tight T-shirts because when she put a ring into her navel, a jewellery ornamental ring into her navel, it acted like a tent pole and held the T-shirt up and suddenly there was no more belly button fluff. We also found that people who had front loader washing machines, which are gentle on your clothing, generated less belly button lint on average than people who had top loaders. So we also had a story from somebody who had noticed that their sister was going out that night in the then popular midriff exposing outfit, but the sister also had some flecks of blue belly button lint. And so he said, hey, sis, you've got some belly button fluff, whereupon she immediately retired to the bathroom, used her fingernail to scrape it out, and then finished off by using not hers but his electric toothbrush to thoroughly (laughs) clean her belly button, whereupon he then came out down with the worst fungal infection of his mouth he never had. Even so, knowing we were dealing with what appeared to be a biohazard, we called for samples of belly button fluff from around the world, and we followed one of the most important rules in science, which is that anything, no matter how boring, always Mm. looks more interesting under an electron micrograph. And with the electron micrograph, we discovered that belly button fluff is made up of fibres of clothing, fibres of abdominal hair, all held together by dead skin cells. And for this, Harvard rewarded me with the Ig Nobel Prize and flew me all the way to Harvard and provided accommodation entirely at my own expense. They wouldn't insult me by offering me tawdry money. (laughs) Oh, I think it's a wonderful accolade. And I like the point that you bring up that 
almost anything in science is important to acknowledge. Also, I feel like the mistakes are never awarded as much because you often public in, publish in scientific journals your successes and not the mistakes. And when you didn't find the answer to the question that you were looking for, which I think is an important thing, we have to be vigilantly aware of our mistakes and stay curious. Yeah, Aside from it, there's a whole yeah. thing on that, Tane, where people should publish negative results so that the, those negative results are part of the overall body of scientific knowledge. I couldn't agree more. Now, aside from belly button fluff, what is getting you most excited in, the, in science and what it's producing at the moment in this current moment in history? Oh, everything. I've been interested in diamonds for a while, ever since I worked with a colleague of mine who had a diamond mine, and we built an anti-gravity machine together, uh, which didn't work, but that's another story. And then we, I've kept an interest in diamonds, and just now it turns out we think we understand more about how diamonds get brought to the surface in these things called kimberlites. You know the story about mm. kimberlites? I do, but can you tell our listeners? In South Africa, there's a bunch of mountains called the Kimberley or Kimberleys, I don't know which, and um, people discovered that there were diamonds there on the surface, and as they dug down, they discovered there was a cylinder going down into the ground. I don't know the diameter, quarter of a kilometre, half a kilometre, I don't know what it is, but it was huge compared to other Kimberlites, and this cylinder containing lots of diamonds just keeps on heading down mm. in the direction of the centre of the earth. And then to follow up on that, more recently, about a century ago, some geologists who'd been in South Africa were walking across the top end of Australia in Western Australia, and they saw some mountains off in the distance, and they said, you know what, they look like the Kimberley or Kimberleys in South Africa, I'll just call them the Kimberley, and they did, and didn't think to go looking for diamonds, and it turned out that also was the site of diamonds, a Kimberlite, and in fact, the only source apparently of yellow diamonds ever found. So a kimberlite is this pipe, anything from half a metre to half a kilometre across, going down. How far down? We think that the diamonds themselves are manufactured between 150 and 250 kilometres down, manufactured from carbon under some strange conditions of huge stress and heat and pressure, sometimes down as far as 800 kilometres, and then are brought to the surface through this pipe and we really haven't been able to find out much about these pipes. And there's just a recent study which caught my attention where it was discovered that if you're on a tectonic plate, and by the way, the surface of the Earth is broken up into about 13 tectonic plates which move around the surface of the Earth carrying continents and oceans on their back, moving at the rate of your fingernails growing, 5 to 10 centimetres a year, average. And when these kimberlites pull apart at the edges, about 20 to 30 million years later, there's a whole bunch of kimberlite pipes erupt in the centre of that tectonic plate. And they're thinking that these pipes erupt at anything between 13 and 130 kilometres an hour coming up to the surface and sometimes erupt at the surface in an almost Mount Vesuvius-like eruption and they've come up with a hypothesis to explain the time delay, and they're saying that as the continents pull apart, the crust, 60 to 6 kilometres thick, the crust yep. gets thin, and then 
you get instabilities in the convection currents, which then migrate towards the center of the current. So a convection current, think about putting some water on the stove and then boiling it up in an open pot, and you drop a green pea in. And you'll see that the green pea, if you drop it in a dead center at the top, will be carried to the edges, will then go down the side of the pot, and then while at the bottom, go across the middle, then back up again. It'll go around and around this convection current, and they're saying that maybe these convection currents migrate to the center of the continent, reach their maximum power, and then pull up a kimberlite somewhere between 20 and 30 million years after the pulling apart happened at the edge of the continent. And that's just one little thing that popped up in the world of science in the last week. Convection activity is an important thing to understand because it drives the weather. And I understand that you were a TV weatherman at some point in your checkered past? It was a great career, yeah. I went and did the course at the Bureau of Meteorology and then became a TV weatherman. And it was a surprise to me to realize that the TV weather person, male or female, was not a meteorologist. They just got a fax, as it was in those days, every morning from the Bureau of Meteorology and then plagiarized it. I had no idea. <laughs> but I did discover a lot about the weather while I was a TV weather person. And, and probably TV. how to communicate, yeah, as well. I was on from six till nine every morning, so I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning and doing a, a whole bunch every half hour of TV weather as well as five different science stories. What other weird jobs have you done, and were they strategic? Did you make them by choice, or was were you just trucking along and doing what was in front of you? The latter. Mostly my career has not been like the epic poem of the Song Dynasty, where the young Chinese man is advised when wanting to inquire about what future pathways to take. He's advised to climb to the top of the tallest tower in his city and look at all the roads leading out and based on that, make decisions about which way to go. No. In the vast majority of cases, my life career has been like a paddle pop stick in the gutter of life on a rainy day, washed by currents over which I have no control. Yeah, well, I'm an avid sailor, so I like getting pushed around <laughs> by the weather and going with the currents. Now, you're an incredible science communicator and a curator of information. I like to say everyone is information DJs at this point in time. But how do you personally filter the information and knowledge that you discover? What bubbles to the surface and why do you feel compelled to talk about it? What information do you hold sacred? On the specific question of what do I hold sacred, avoid opinions, stick to the facts. That's been the long-term advice somebody gave me and it's been a very good mantra. How do I pick the stuff? Anything that appeals to my shallow curiosity. So it's a three-part process to generate the story. The first part is that I was able to get 28 years of education for free, including 16 years at university in physics mm -hmm. and mathematics and biomedical engineering and medicine and surgery, as well as several non-degree years in computer science, astrophysics, philosophy, and electrical engineering. But the second part is keeping up to date by reading through about $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year. But the third part is turning it into a story because you can read stuff, but unless you turn it into a story, you'll forget it. And 
the story is then stored as a single block of information in my brain. And so to come up with one little item, like the little story I told you about the diamonds, that's about eight hours of reading. And how do you then generate a story? For example, at Future Crunch, we try to think about narrative and story as everything. You can tell someone a fact. 86% of facts are made up on the spot. But how do you actually inspire people to pay attention to it? And we call it the smart, heart, and fart approach. Keep oh, the evidence sacred. Uh, uh-huh. Keep the evidence sacred. Gold-plated evidence uh-huh. is good. But then you can expand your narrative about how to get people emotionally engaged, how you can help them envision themselves in the future narrative or in, in a story of their life. And then, of course, fart, you got to have some fun. We all fart. We all need to have a laugh, no matter how serious things are. And so the heart, smart, and fart approach is the way we go about it. How do you go Uh, about building a narrative? I follow a very ancient formula, which is broken into three parts, as most things are. There's three days of the week in country and western songs, each yesterday, today, and tomorrow, each one worse than the one before it. And in my case, with regard to stories, I start off with a hook that will drag in their attention, give an explanation, and then finish off with a little joke. So the explanation makes them feel smarter, and then the little joke makes them happy. But I actually voice the stories down as I'm speaking to somebody, and then have them transcribed by a little app, and then edit them while trying to keep the flavor of the spoken narrative. Yes, you're good at flavor and storytelling. Now, you tell stories to a lot of people, and you talk to a lot of people, from governments to corporations to music festival goers. We actually got to hang out and talk at the science tent at Splendor in the Grass a few years back, which was a lot of fun. Ah. Now, yeah, the show is about conscious capital. So what can organizations and entrepreneurs learn about the scientific method and how to make sustainable businesses that help not only people, but the entire planet? Whoa, that is bigger than Ben-Hur. One problem with businesses is that they're now into a cycle of quarterly reporting on a financial Mm. basis, which means that there's no real point in trying to do any project that's longer than two and a half months because you'll only make a loss in the short term. And that's completely at variance with science where typically a $1 investment in science will give you $5 back, but after 10 years. Yes, slow moving. Yeah, so 500% over 10 years, 50% a year, that's a terrific return, but you only get it all back towards the end. And the trouble is that many businesses are very short-term, get-rich-quick, get-out, and not here for the long-term. And that has effects on how they work. So in the case of the fossil fuel companies, it's enormously beneficial to them financially to be able to treat the world as a garbage dump. So we could recycle 95% of plastics. We do recycle only 5%. And it's better for the fossil fuel companies because they make more money selling the raw feedstock than from recycling. Also, they make a tremendous amount of profit by using the atmosphere as their dump for carbon dioxide and causing global warming. And yet they carry none of the consequences. So what can businesses learn from science? I think the first thing is to appreciate that science pays off, but usually you're looking at long term. 
The second thing is a very important lesson from Richard Feynman, which is that science is a way to not get fooled. And mm. so if you can stick to what's real in running a business, that could well give you advantages, unless, of course, you want to be a crooked business, in which case it would be a disadvantage. Yeah, Richard Feynman is one of my favorite scientists. And as he famously said, if you can't describe it to a five-year-old, you don't know what you're talking about. What scientific discoveries and new technologies are you particularly excited about in the current world that can give us solutions to some of our biggest problems? What should humanity be hopeful for? There's four, when you mentioned hopeful, I'm thinking of four messages of good hope. And the four, first one is simply that we can stop and reverse climate change and bring both carbon dioxide levels and the climate back to what it was in the 20th century before most of our audience were born using today's technologies. And new technologies will come online and they'll become part of the fabric of society. So I'm really looking forward to when the electric car is a part of the energy grid. And the way to look at it is to appreciate that the energy content of an electric battery is around 100 kilowatt hours, which will give the car a range of 400 or 500 kilometers depending. But there's also enough energy to run an American house for three to four days, mm -hmm. my house for 10 days, my son's apartment for 25 days, the energy in one car battery. The cost of these batteries, it all depends. If you, and these are American figures, if you buy them from Elon Musk and get the Tesla batteries, to get 100 kilowatt hours at home is 73,000 US dollars. But, wow. But you can buy a motor vehicle, a Ford F-150 Lightning, which comes with everything needed to plug it into your house and an electric battery, and it's nearly half the cost, $43,000, and you get a car thrown in for free. Or you can go to the spare parts department of Tesla and buy the 100-kilowatt-hour battery for $18,000, but it comes with all sorts of software to stop you from plugging it into your house because they're greedy mm -hmm. that way. And yep. still, if they're making a profit at $18,000, they must be making a huge profit at 73,000. But the important thing about the electric grid is assume, or the electric car, assume that every car is electric and plugged into the house. So during the day, they catch the excess sunlight. And then if the electric grid were to go down, the cars plugged into the grid could run all of the country for a week. Yeah. And suddenly, the electric car is not this sort of luxury item for wealthy people, but it's just part of the daily grid. And by the way, you can recycle lithium, and recycled lithium has better performance than fresh lithium out of the ground. Yep, the Murdoch Press lied about that as well. Oh, they're pretty good at, let's say, putting up alternative facts. I, I really do love the idea of using our storage, our devices, whether it's a car, your laptop, computer, or smartphone as a storage device. Being able to create technology to go two ways within inside a household to manage energy is important because we have a lot of storage capacity. I have a two-part question here. 
Is there any technology that you currently know of that allows a household to do that? And also, I'd like you to elucidate a little bit more about how recycling lithium is sustainable because we've got some of the biggest deposits of lithium in the world here in Australia. And so that's an important topic because we want to make a sustainable future. Let's just deal with the second part. The Swedes are building a huge factory to make the equivalent of a million car batteries a year using lithium, yes, from Australia. And why aren't we doing it? Well, Australia does not have a good reputation of Mm. um, actually making stuff. We did in the past, but we're turning rapidly into an information service economy a few weeks ago. A few months ago, we lost the ability in Australia to make white paper. If you want photocopy paper, you've got to order it from overseas. And we also lost the ability to make bricks. Now, you're thinking, all you do is you get some clay and heat it up. 8,000-year-old technology, yet we lost that. We need a radical change coming from the political side of a different way of thinking to get us out of the problems that we're heading towards with regard to climate change. But especially seeing that lithium can be recycled is a wonderful thing. Now, what was the first part of the question again? One is, the first part of the question was, do you know of any technology that exists that allows consumers to plug their batteries, whether it's from their smartphone or their electric car, to feed back into the electricity grid or at least to help manage the energy usage in their house? So... A friend of mine has tied into what we call the AEMO grid in Australia, which is the okay. Australian Energy Management Organisation, which is a collection of private companies. And I strongly suspect that their goal is not to give the cheapest electricity possible to Australians, but rather to give the most expensive electricity and therefore yes. many, maximise their profits. So if you go onto the AEMO website, and then have a look at what electricity is going in and out, often you'll find that around midday, now here's a bit of background, electricity from solar panels is the cheapest electricity we have. And what you'll usually find is that the grid goes negative with regard to the pricing of solar electricity. So the grid could get electrons that would be very cheap, but instead of paying the solar manufacturers, the solar electric manufacturers for the electricity, often around midday they charge them five cents per kilowatt hour. So they are being charged to give electricity to the grid so they don't do it. And then the coal-fired power stations chug along very expensively, creating greenhouse gases and charging a huge amount of money and making the consumer pay more money. So it seems to me that We've got a kind of fundamentally flawed system, if you can call it a system. Mm. <laughs> One bit of background to realise is that Australia has roughly the same GDP as Russia, but we can't yeah. make aeroplanes or cars or satellites or submarines or aircraft carriers or even paper or even bricks. How does Australia need to change? And uh- In that way, do you think they can? And also, in the way to help combat climate change, because you mentioned climate change before, and do you think we can solve it and how Australia can be a part of that process? So that was five questions in one. So first of all, I tend to do that as a scientist. I tend to ask too many questions. I get excited. 
one at a time. Yeah, read the, my little, Dr. Carl's little book of climate change science, really cheap, 10, 15 bucks. Or read The New Climate War by Michael Mann or Great Merchants book. of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes. Mm. And the only thing stopping us from reversing climate change are the lies of big fossil fuel, which have been lying since 1990. There is yeah. nothing stopping us technically, only the fact that they've bought a whole lot of politicians. Just for fun, look up corruption index in Wikipedia and see where Australia ranks. So we waste a lot of our money and don't invest it in the future. Yeah, we could fix climate change really easily for electricity within 10 years for the whole world. With regard to steel and concrete, which generate 15% of carbon dioxide emissions, we could do that in 15 years. We could make carbon emission-free concrete and steel within 15 years. Agriculture, 5 to 20 years, most of it early on. Transport, ground transport is really easy with the batteries. The difficult one is air and sea, which combined add up 5%, add up to 5% of global carbon dioxide emissions. And for that, we probably need hydrogen. The only thing stopping us are the politicians who have been bought by big fossil fuel who've been spending up to a billion dollars a year since 1990. Yeah, I agree that politicians shouldn't be experts in politics because that's the game they play. They should have to have an expertise in the area that they govern. They should all be at least surrounded by PhDs or academics in the field, if not currently pursuing the route of education and academia around their subject. Now, I have a fun question for you. Mm -hmm. Future Crunch we're all about better solutions and changing the story of the human race in the 21st century. We believe that we need to change the stories we tell ourselves to believe in that better future. But we're also all about sustainable and fun fashion. You wear epic shirts a lot. So tell us about your awesome shirts and where did they come from? They're made from cotton material because cotton breathes well and is non-synthetic and synthetic materials have a better fa- better print and I have a few, only a very few synthetic shirts, but the trouble is they stink in the armpits, so you've got to wear stupid armpit deodorant and they're a major source of microplastics into the environment and in 2021 a new word was invented, Plasti Centre, to celebrate the fact that in two out of three women mentioned, monitored, their placentas contained microplastics. Yes. So we've got to stop that. Secondly, the clothing industry worldwide is a source of much exploitation of poorer people, and we're not paying the proper cost of clothing. And I know people who buy clothing because they suffer from the condition called affluenza. There's a book on this by <laughs> Richard Dennis. Yes. And affluenza is a love of buying, not a love of the product. I love my laptop. I have got a nice case on it that's really heavy and strong and will protect it from being dropped 40 times from four feet. I know people who buy stuff and love the act of buying and then pass it on to somebody else because they get a thrill out of buying stuff. And that is especially the case with clothing. Clothing is a fairly large source of global emissions and of political misery and is not properly costed. Clothing should be more expensive. I've been reading a book about how the true cost of a Big Mac which sells for $10, should be $200 if you want to cover the cost of the social problems that you're causing right now, as well as the future problems you're dumping on our children and grandchildren. In economics, there's a wonderful phrase called hidden externalities. 
Yes. So if you shove your pollution onto somebody else, it's cheaper for you and the next generation or your neighbor on whom you've dumped the bad things has to pay for it. So with regard to clothing, my wife makes those shirts, takes three hours with the four-thread overlocker with differential feed and a sewing machine with a bottle hole attachment. I normally wear them between five to 40 times before they get faded and then pass them on and turn them into a fabric. And being cotton, they don't throw out microplastics. Yeah, I love that your wife makes your clothing. I think it's beautiful. And then she gets to hang out with you on stage and uh, as well and be a part of the way you show up in the world. Now, I have a quick question to pick up on from the beginning. I was mm. really curious about what are the two deserts that you have not yet crossed or visited? Because you mentioned that you've... Ah, yeah, the Victoria Desert in the bottom half of Western Australia as part of the Canning Stock Route and the Moon Desert in South Australia. I've been into the Painted Desert in Western, in South Australia, and that's just ridiculous. It looks yeah. as though somebody's flown over it in a giant helicopter loaded with a couple of hundred thousand litres of pastel paint and just paint everything pastel, and it looks just ridiculous and real and unbelievable. So they're my two deserts I haven't seen. I grew up in the United States in the southwest in New Mexico, and they call where I live the Painted Desert as well, and the beautiful palette ah. of colour inspired like Georgia O'Keeffe, the Grand Canyon, all that kind of crazy, wonderful, beautiful architecture inspired, well, driven by nature. And the, Wow. Yeah. All right, we're coming up to September, which happens to include Father's Day. How do you feel about being named Australian Father of the Year almost 20 years ago? And have you changed as a father? What do you do differently now compared back to 2003? I don't think I was really worthy of being father of the year. I've tried to become more worthy by spending more time with the kids in a better way. And I guess I've realized my deficiencies, which is the first step, and now just trying to spend more time with them. It's interesting that with the next generation, they're both got a higher IQ than we than their parents. It's called the Flynn effect, the IQ going up by nine IQ points every year. But also they seem, the next generation and other generations, to have a higher emotional IQ than my generation ever had at mm. their age. So I'm very hopeful for the future, uh, and I wish they'd just hurry up and take over the running of the world. That's great. We often leave the... Conscious Capital episodes with a quote. Do you have any favorites that come to mind? The best one from Richard Feynman is that science is a way to not get fooled. Or here's a social one that took me a long time to live, to learn. Mm. In fact, two of them, two of them. And these are very important as being a part of society. And most people never learn them in their whole lives. Oh, so here's the first one. So tell me if you know this one, Dr. Tane. In public buildings, comma, the toilets are usually near the elevators, full stop. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Would that be because See? the plumbing goes down? The yeah, yeah, it's part of having the service ducts. Yeah, you just have all the service things in one area. And yeah. the second one, once again, most people never discover this in their whole lives, never se have sex with anybody who has more problems than you do. The sex is great, comma, but you pay for it, full stop. I, not to be too personal, but I think I've lived that one a few times in my gallivanting around the world. 
<laughs> you should only make mistakes once or twice. Once you're getting up to three or four times, you need to reevaluate what's happening so you don't keep on making the same mistakes. But God knows I've made so many mistakes myself. But on the other hand, here's another bit of advice. If you don't make a mistake, you don't make nothing. Just don't try to make the same mistakes too often. Yeah. And I love one too. The experts have made all the mistakes, but I think the scientific method can help us with that because given a mistake, it insists that you rethink what you thought you once knew. Anyway, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Carl. It was such a pleasure. You're one of my science heroes. So I really appreciate your time today. I'm not worthy, but that's awfully kind of you. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Conscious Capital. Stay safe, be kind to each other, and stay classy, planet Earth. And don't do anything we wouldn't do. Conscious Capital. Tune in to the business of being better. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Sunil Badami. While businesses have long used data to track productivity and sales and customer behaviour and everything else, it's incredible that they haven't used the same research to determine how to design workplaces that encourage creativity and increase productivity. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. How can managers get everyone back in the office? With some employers, like major financial company FNZ, threatening its entire workforce with the sack if they didn't come back to work. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.